0: Post-modern and post-Christian are both terms that the church seriously needs to retire. We're going to the world to tell them who we are, and we're not going to the world to present who God
1: is. The world in which so much is focused on building walls and keeping people out, an alternative way to live is to live it's by It's almost God. like raising a white
0: flag and saying, Ah, oh, it's all the secular people's fault and so no one's listening or coming to our evangelistic.
1: How can we redesign Adventism to be effective at reaching emerging Western culture? That's what the Story Church podcast is all about Adventism Redesigned. Hey everyone, it is Pastor Marcus here, and I want to welcome you back to the Story Church podcast. Today is the final episode of the Deconstructing the Adventist Worship Wars Season, Padanar Season 5. And uh, look, I just really want to thank you guys, all of you who have tuned in and have listened to these episodes and have shared them with your friends. Um, This has been an incredible journey And Max and I have had an incredible time. And we just want to thank you guys for your support, for your encouragement. It's been one of the most listened to podcast seasons that I've ever done. And uh, I've received just an incredible amount of messages of support and thanks for those of you who have not only been listening to the content, but, but, but been blessed by the content as well. And of course, I need to say an absolute, overwhelming, ginormous, gigantic thank you to Maxwell Aka as well for having been willing to sit down and record all of these episodes with me so that we could explore this topic that so many of us, especially in the younger generations, have really been wrestling and struggling with uh, for a really long time within our denomination and within our church. So thank you, Max. I really appreciate you. You are uh, super awesome, bro. Uh, I'll never, ever forget this. Now, before I go ahead and turn over to the final episode, which is part two of the conversation that Maxwell Akka and I were having last week, I do want to tell you guys, because this is the final recorded sort of interviewish slash episode for the season, um, there, there won't be any more episodes coming out after this. We wrap up the conversation in this episode. However, there is a QA that Max and I will do in the new year. So after this episode goes live, which is this week, there will not be a new episode the next week or the week after. Obviously, Christmas, you know, we're going to be celebrating with family and traveling and things like that. So we're going to take a break. But then we're going to do a Q&A next year. It's going to be the very first episode that goes up next year. And uh, look, if you have any questions whatsoever that we have not explored in this season or maybe that we touched on but we didn't fully, you know, scratch the itch so to speak please send those questions to me uh, you can email them to pastor Marcos at the story church project.com or you can go to the story church project.com and click contact at the bottom of the page and contact me uh, or you could post a comment under you know the the actual page that this episode is under or on Facebook wherever just let us know what your questions are so that we can address them in that final q a episode and with that final q a episode uh our season five deconstructing the Adventist worship wars will be officially concluded and complete so please guys if you have any questions whatsoever anything anything ever so slight about this topic that you wish we could have touched on a little bit better or that you're still confused about please send those questions through. There's lots of different ways that you can send the questions through. So don't miss this opportunity. This gonna be posted in the new year. And uh, so please guys, send those questions through. Okay, with that said, I am gonna flip over to the episode. I hope you guys enjoy the final leg of our gargantuan conversation on this topic. I pray that you're blessed and I wanna wish you guys a super incredible Merry Christmas and a happy new year. We'll see you guys next year you know? Yeah. So yeah, anyways, all right. Throwing the ball back at you. Yeah. So, I mean, all of this,
0: th- this like network of ideas that we're, we're painting here Um. again, like this can be really upsetting for people. Cause I think like we haven't talked a lot of music stuff yet. We're talking a lot about like Ellen White and how do we understand her and like little tidbits about things that she said or things that happened to her. But really, I think understanding her and understanding how to interpret her is really the linchpin issue for this whole conversation. Everything else is, is secondary to that. And there there are good like points to make, but like really everything else is secondary to being like, are you actually reading her carefully and reading her the way she wants to be read? Um, I know QOD questions on doctrine can be a a hot button for some people, Um, but I don't know of anything that has been a better like outwardly facing you know, compilation of theological statements for us to at least explain to Protestants of different flavors what we believe. And in the section in Questions on Doctrine on Ellen White and her relationship to scripture, one of the things that they point out is that essentially, theologically speaking, we think of Ellen White's writings in the same way we would think of, say, like the writings from Paul that we don't have, like those letters from between 1st and 2nd Corinthians, or uh, the prophecies of someone like Agabus from the Book of Acts, or the prophet Nathan, because apparently he wrote a book. Uh, We don't have it. It's not in scripture. Who knows where that is, but he wrote something. Um, And they compare her to a bunch of non-literary prophets in the Bible, which is interesting, because to us, Ellen White is literary. We do have her works. We have like too much of her works some days to, I don't think I'll ever finish reading all of it in my lifetime. The Bible has me busy as it is, but like there's a lot that she wrote and yet we categorize her in, in our writings as l- being like one of the non-literary prophets or like a prophet whose writings we don't have. Um, meaning that her writing applies to a specific historical context and applies to a specific set of situations And you have to take those things into account. I mean, it's interesting that they compare her to Nathan because I always get the Samuels and Kings and all of those jumbled up in my head, but this would be in one of the, it would be in Samuel if we treat Samuel as one book. But David, he's toying with the idea of like, man, I live in a palace and the Ark of the Covenant doesn't live in a nice place. And that just doesn't seem right. So I want to build a house for God. And when he expresses that to Nathan, Nathan full on tells him like, do whatever's in your heart. The Lord is with you. That is a theological statement by a confirmed prophet, right? Like Nathan is definitely like, we don't have a book of Nathan, but he's definitely a prophet and do what is in your heart for the Lord is with you. That's a theological statement. And that night God comes to him and says, yeah, so about what you told King David, uh, tomorrow you're gonna have to go back and tell him. So about what I said, nope nope, not what the Lord wants. Uh, In fact, he's going to build you a house and then that whole thing. But like Nathan is a prophet and he made a theologically incorrect statement based on his own opinion. Mm -hmm. Right. Like that is, that does not disqualify him as a true prophet, true prophets. They're not using the gift of prophecy 100% of the time. Yeah. Right. Exactly. So uh, all of these things are important for people to consider. And I, there's a part of my brain that wants to be like, oh, this is all preliminary stuff. This is all ancillary, like whatever. But I I really think that there's a lot of people who have never had that presented to them before as mm-hmm. like something that's part of the Adventist theological literature as something that's like part of our official statements that we've made as a church, right? Mm-hmm. QOD was like the 50s or 60s. Yeah. Like that, this was in our Adventist theological bloodstream before we'd even fully reckoned with like, ellen white's mm. literary whatever you know what i mean That's right so yeah, yeah like we have known this and this has been in our theological dna and somehow it just doesn't filter down to the pew for whatever mm. reason so i do think it's it's yeah. useful for us to go over these kinds of details because once you have some of this on board i think it's much more difficult to like wildly proof text with ellen mm-hmm. white yeah
1: but since Absolutely. we do
0: wildly proof text, back to two
1: SM thirty six. Um... <laughs> so so let's so let's let's look at this. Let, let me sure. see how I can frame this. Frame this so we can land two SM. <laughs> we can land the plane on two SM. So sure. There's a few things in this. I'm not planning on people... landing. I'm just letting you know. I'm going to keep coming back to it because I have like a bajillion <laughs> more things to say. It's gonna, it's gonna, it's just gonna keep rising until it yep. stalls. No, I'm just kidding. Um, so here's a few things people will say. Be that as it may, the statement clearly says I was shown. Mm-hmm. So this is uh, you know, sort of a prophetic vision of the end time. Yeah. Um, and then it specifically points out these, you know, music and drums and shouting. Yeah. Um, and so then people will look at that and they'll say when you look at a contemporary Christian music concert, mm-hmm. you find all three of those, you find music. Well, duh. I mean, yeah, you find music everywhere, but you know, yeah. <laughs> you find it in a hymn a hymn service as well, but you, you mm-hmm. do, but you also, you, the drums are definitely there. Uh, maybe they were different in Indiana, but it's still like drums. I mean, the drums, drum is it so, drum. Reason. It's yeah. there. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and shouting. Mm-hmm. So when we look at, you know, younger generations worshiping differently, um clearly we're seeing all the markings that she saw and we're seeing this notion that she she made that all of this is going to uh be sort of confused or looked at as oh the holy spirit's moving when he's really not and then Mm -hmm. people will cite things like you know young people used to know the theology and today all they know is songs you know they'll say things like that um, because the music has become the all-encompassing thing, and they don't know their mm-hmm. Bibles anymore, um, and so they'll see this statement as a prophetic rebuke of contemporary Christian music in all its forms. Mm-hmm. And yeah, like so, so, and, and this idea again. Here's the bit because my brain went a little fuzzy there, but it's all good. you know, the, the bedlam of noise content mm-hmm. that I mentioned before which is easily applied to any style of music I don't like. That's the bedlam of noise that she was talking about. So if we take, you know, obviously context and history and personality into account, we're still left with at least this basic framework of music is going to be used by Satan at the end of time. Um, And it's going to be used in such a way to lower rational thought. And bolster emotive experience at the expense of rational thought. That seems to be at least the basic framework. Now, for me, I don't know how, I'm really interested in seeing how you work this out. Because for me, that doesn't bother me. Because I agree. Like, I agree that mm-hmm. Satan can use music. Mm-hmm. Um, that does, that's, I don't have a problem with that. And I agree that he can use it in such a way to bolster emotive experience at the expense of rational thought. Mm -hmm. And I don't advocate (laughs) for anything that produces that sort of an experience. What I disagree with is that this statement is a blanket prophetic rejection of anything that's not a hymn. Um, I have been to plenty of Christian concerts and I enjoy plenty of contemporary Christian music. That has drums and music mm-hmm. and and shouting. That is that is not a bedlam of noise. It's done very well. It's very mm-hmm. organized. It's very professional. Um, mm-hmm. It's very well thought. Very well composed. Uh, it does not raise the emotive at the expense of the rational at all. Um, in mm-hmm. fact, there's a lot of modern worship music that. Has incredible depth of theological thought, and there's modern worship music that has is very cheesy and shallow, just like hymns. Right, there are hymns right. that are just and cheesy and shallow, <laughs> yeah. uh, and and others that 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 have the theological depth. So for me, it seems this is the best that I could say if I am to take Ellen White's statement here um, and apply it into the modern age. The best that I can come up with that makes the most sense is it seems she's she doesn't appear to be attacking a style of music. She doesn't even appear to be attacking particular instruments of music. Mm-hmm. What she seems to be protesting is the way in which they are used. That there yes. is a way of using these instruments and style doesn't even come into the picture here. It's just the use of the instruments. There's a yeah. way of using it that can, that can be detrimental to a person's spirituality. And as a fan of contemporary Christian music and Christian hip hop and, you know, Christian rock and all these things, I totally agree. You know, I'm like, sure. there is a way, uh, wh- but again, what I disagree with, with like the, the like the conservative or traditionalists is I, I think, and I, I think you made this point earlier, very, very well. Uh, And it was mind blowing. I was like, boom, Um, that that way of using music that can be detrimental, clearly from the context of Indiana shows us that that way isn't dependent on a style. Yeah, because the music they were singing then was hymns. Yeah. So whatever the way that is problematic, it can happen within a hymn based environment. And so clearly it can happen within any environment. Um, mm-hmm. which then obviously invites the opposite conclusion that there is a way of singing the hymns that is ennobling. And there's a way of doing any sort of a- any s- style of worship that is ennobling in a way that is problematic. Um, so yeah, that, that's how I understand that statement and, and sort of apply it in a way that says, what this invites us to is whatever style of worship we are using and, and, and we need the different styles and, you know, different cultures and different expressions. That's all right. But whatever style of worship it is we're using, there are certain principles that seem to be at play. One of them is, at the very least, one of them is to be building up the mind rather than just, you know, emotionally unregulated experiences. Yeah and i can dig that like i'm like i agree you know like i don't i don't you know like i don't believe in emotional dysregulation as a, as a sure. thing um and and likewise for the for the music to be done in a way that is actually composed and intelligent it doesn't mean it's classical music it doesn't mean it's hymns it can be any style of music but there is a way of doing it that is composed and smart and artistic and there's a way of doing it that's cheap so that's the way I understand that. I don't know, like maybe you disagree or maybe you have nuances that I'm missed, but go for it. You're going
0: in the right direction. Okay. I think the the problem that happens for a lot of people, myself included sometimes, is that we overfixate on the music part of it. And we often don't think about the things that aren't music that are part of music, which is a weird statement. There are things that are part of the experience of music that aren't the music, which includes things like cultural assumptions, symbolic meaning, interpersonal relationships, philosophy, theology, literally all of the subtopics that we talked about previously in the the podcast. Everything else is also a factor. Something that is very important. I want to talk about, um, you know, necessary and sufficient conditions. When you look at the situation that Ellen White describes in the future, God, like the Lord has shown me that X, Y, and Z things will happen in the future in relation to, in analogy to what happened in Indiana, you have to take into account that there is more to the exercise of listening to music than just the music. A lot of what happens when we listen to music, a lot of the experience is what we ourselves bring to it. So for example, and I'm gonna really, really unpack this. Um, Credit to Adam Neely, if you know the music YouTuber, again, I reference him quite a bit, but he did a whole video, actually a couple videos in a series on why he, as a jazz fusion bass player, hates contemporary christian music um yes i saw oh, that it was actually really good <laughs> yeah it's really it's a really really great uh thing and one of the concepts that he he cites a music scholar on is the idea of music ing music as a verb for what a group of people do collectively together not just the people playing the music but also the people observing the audience and the interplay between performer and audience there are social relationships there even if they're shallow ones there are cultural expectations there there are parameters for what is and isn't socially acceptable in a given environment right and and culture and theology and and everything um all of that is a factor there right I'm gonna to try to move through this more quickly so that we don't get like you know sidetracked with the amount of time we have left. But thank you for the heads up. Um, so, in the context of Indiana in 1900, part of the situation was the Holy Flesh movement, right? That's a part. Of, that's a huge part of the context. Yeah, there wasn't right. like so it, interesting thing. Um, there's a, there's a long conversation that, uh, ha- happened over email between Eugene Pruitt and, um, David Asherick.
1: Yes. I, From, I actually linked well, that in one of the previous episodes where we did the, some resources. There's a link where you can download their, yes. their dialogue. Yeah. Um, I'm going to actually start referring to Eugene Pruitt, uh,
0: quite a bit now, cause he's actually been an interlocutor of mine of sorts. He left a few comments in various spots on like the, I believe Bible pages where reform Adventist worship was up. And one of the lines of thinking that I saw him use in this email exchange, as well as in my comment section, was like, OK, so, it, it, you know, in Indiana, is it, uh, is it the music that's leading to the bad theology or is it bad theology that's leading to the music? Because that seems to be the two sides. And the more progressive side is going to be like, well, it's just the, the music was caused by their bad theology. That's not my argument at all. My ar- well, kind of, but not in its fullest sense. There is a circular relationship between the theology of the people present, the culture of the people present, the social relationships, the social expectations of the people present, and the music. Those are in a constant loop feeding each other, right? You come in with a set of expectations of what can I wear to this event? How can I behave at this event? What kind of singing is appropriate for the audience at this event? That guy is doing it pretty loud. I can do it louder now the band is playing back at us louder because they're getting energy from us. All of those things are factors. What the audience brings as participants, even just like smiling back at the performers, can do a huge things to how the music is actually performed, right? I don't think people realize this, like playing to a dead audience is demoralizing. Like if you don't get some kind of positive response, even like a light applause, like at the end of a song, like, it can be demoralizing. It can actually affect how you play. The audience can kill the momentum and the energy of the performance just by being a bad audience or by being unimpressed or whatever, right? So it's everything. You, you can't say like, oh, music, sufficient condition for the senses of rational beings will become so confused that they can't be trusted to make right They say, no, 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 no that will not ever happen to someone who was not ready to already become completely irrational in a musical context, right? And and that's something that I don't th- think people consider. It's like, there are necessary and sufficient conditions. The presence of drums is not a sufficient condition for absolutely losing control of yourself. Obviously, we've debunked that from a historical, from a psychological, scientific, whatever point of view. But interestingly, the presence of drums is also not a necessary condition for that kind of thing to happen. For example, there's this crazy clip online. I'm pretty sure it's still on YouTube. Um, I don't know where the original source is because it's one of those things that's been like on the internet since like before YouTube understood like having lots of pixels. Okay. So it, it's an old, old clip. But uh, if you Google or if you if you search on YouTube, crazy white people church, you can find um, this clip and it is a predominantly white church. Um, you you can listen to it. They're they're singing a song. Um, it's hard to make out the words, but I've listened to it so many times that I've been able to piece together. The song itself is uh, based on the parable of the 10 uh, of the 10 virgins uh, from Matthew 25, Matthew 25, I think. Yeah. Um, but the the theology of the song is distinctly dispensationalist, right? So this is probably either a a charismatic or Pentecostal church environment because like the lyrics very explicitly refer to like a rapture timing of the second coming, right? So that is definitely the theological context. There, there is one man singing into the microphone up front as the song leader. Um, there is a piano and a guitar being played that you can hear they're kind of off to the side you can't really see them but you can tell that there's a piano and a guitar and those are the only instruments present while this man is singing this dispensationalist song about the parable of the ten virgins that sounds like a you know old-timey folk american hymn it sounds like the stylistically it sounds like something that could be in the Adventist hymnal the men get up from their seats and sprint around the pews in circles and run up and down the aisle, and they flail their jackets in the air. I've actually got the video at,
1: playing in the background.
0: You're, you're seeing this. <laughs> the man throws
1: his I, jacket. I saw at the some song. guy like do a flip onto the onto the stage, and then another the, guy threw his jacket at the singer and threw the yeah, jacket at the singer. Intense. The
0: guy who did the somersault onto the stage goes on to do a front flip into the baptistry. Yes. Um yes. It's yeah, past, so yeah. <laughs> this this is actual mayhem. Like, this is crazy, mm. right? Um, the guy singing can barely get through some of his lines because he's laughing at the people in the congregation. Like, it, mm. it is
1: that's pretty chaotic. And, and it, can like, I can I just throw in something real quick and 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 add this as well, which I think is really really uh, important to this part of the conversation? Uh, yeah. As I mentioned in a previous episode, my mm-hmm. sort of like go to favorite reformer is John Wesley. And I love reading stories about John Wesley, his life, his missionary work, incredible guy, incredible human being. But one of the things I found really interesting in one of the biographies i read about John Wesley was his revival programs, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The John Wesley revival programs were holiness programs and and they had a holiness function and the whole idea behind it, which ties into the Holy Flesh movement that we're about to talk to. And and the Holy Flesh movement isn't something that John Wesley himself necessarily promoted, but it's intricately linked. Um, yeah. The whole idea behind it was a focus on sanctification, yeah. right? The Wesleys, and and this plays into even Adventism's roots in Methodism, and and, and you know like sanctification, all that, all, all these things are connected. So they had a very, very prime focus on holiness and sanctification as mm-hmm. part of the Christian life, something that had been forgotten. Throughout the history of Protestantism and Calvinism and predestination and, and even early Arminianism. So they were kind of bringing this idea of perf- perfection of Christian character and sanctification back to the center of Christian experience, which we as Adventists would say, hallelujah, amen to that, right? right? What I found really interesting was that they described in this biography of John Wesley's that at these revival meetings... That were focused on sanctification and holiness, there was this display of emotion and almost like emotional dysregulation. Where people were going nuts. I mean, the kind of stuff that you expect to see at like your typical charismatic Pentecostal church today, the kind of things I'm seeing in this crazy white this people video. church video were happening. I mean, people were running up and down, fainting, convulsing, all kinds of stuff at these yep. Wesley meetings. But the thing that really blew my mind is they were singing hymns. Mm-hmm. They weren't singing contemporary Christian. There was no Hillsong. There was no. There was no drum. You know, like trap set with backbeat and syncopated beats. They were singing hymns, and yep. people are like flailing off of their pews and acting all kinds of wild. You know, and I remember reading this and thinking, at uh, growing up in the Adventist Church, I've always associated that type of behavior in a worship setting with modern styles of worship that modern styles of worship are responsible for causing this type of mayhem and yet here i am reading a biography of john wesley in the 1800s where this kind of music didn't exist yet and you've got these meetings where people are singing hymns uh some of which the wesleys themselves wrote that we still sing today and they are flipping the script i mean you know like just absolute mayhem and so i realized at that moment It's not the drum's fault. Something else is going on here. Yeah, Something else is at play. Now, the book didn't explain. In fact, John Wesley himself has said could not explain the phenomenon. He did not know why people were acting this way at their holiness revival meetings. And he just kind of took it as must be the Holy Spirit moving, you know? Um, But what it clearly showed was you can't blame the style of music for that. Something else is going on. And I think that's what you're describing with the Indiana camp meeting. And, and Lillian Dukan talks about this in her book, In Tune With God, where people ask about, like, does this style of music possess people? It's like there has to be a social and ideological sort of thing already happening beforehand, before yeah. you show up at the event that predisposes you to, you know, being taken or possessed by the music, so to speak. It's, it's not – you can't just – like, if someone's playing drums at church, you're not going to magically be possessed. Like, it just doesn't work that yeah. way, you know? So anyways, yeah. go on. I just I just thought I'd throw that no, in there because I saw the linkage really, really well.
0: No, that's, that's really good. And, like, it, to kind of elaborate on that last point you just made, like, even when they've gone into, like, other cultural contexts and they've gone into, say, like, a West African context where there is actual, like... It's part of the religious beliefs to say, no, I am communing with my ancestors. Like I am being overtaken by a different spirit right now. Interestingly, the musicians and the drummers don't go into a possessive trance state because if they did, they would stop playing, right? And so it's, it's not their job right now to give themselves over to that impulse. And so they refrain because it doesn't just... Christian Berdahl uses this language where like when the beat comes in, your frontal lobe is gone. Obviously, he can't mean that literally, but he's being hyperbolic and he's saying like, you you lose the ability to make rational choices. That's completely false. People make rational choices all the time in the presence of like music with a beat. That's like, you have to make a rational choice as to whether or not to give yourself over to how the music is making you feel and you also have to make choices called interpretation because music is art you have to also partially decide how the music makes you feel um, so that that's a big part of it
1: right um, yeah look a, a perfect example of that just uh, sorry to jump in but just some no, some no. of these things just come at the um, when I was a kid 7th uh, grade I saw the movie It which is okay. a horror movie about this murderous clown Pennywise right, right? Yeah. um, That movie really traumatized me <laughs> right. I was like really sheltered So I wasn't prepared for that My wife saw that movie when she was a kid And she just thought it was funny Because she'd seen she'd already seen Poltergeist And all the others Like this right. was like the first horror movie I ever saw I couldn't sleep for two weeks man It was so bad Got it. But there's an interesting experience that happened There is a classical music piece That's played in that movie mm-hmm. And I don't remember the name of the classical music piece But it's kind of like the signature song of the film and it's played a few times, and there's there's even a scene where someone's sitting on a piano playing the classical music piece. I cannot remember the name of the song. I would have been nice to have Googled it before the episode, but I didn't even think about the story before, so it just kind of popped in my head now. Mm-hmm. What's interesting is after watching the movie It, anytime I heard that classical music piece, I, got, I, I would feel feelings of terror and depression. Right. Anytime I heard that classical music piece, I would just yeah. like get this sense of dread And, and, and somberness come over me right Mm -hmm. now, if I played the classical music piece to you without that association in your, in your neural pathways, you wouldn't have the same experience. Exactly. I could, I could turn around and say, this classical music piece is evil. Nobody should listen to this. It makes you depressed. It affects your emotional state. Without realizing the only reason why it was affecting my emotional state is because I associated neurologically, I associated that song with all the terror and fear I experienced by watching the movie It as a seventh grader, right? That's the only reason the song disturbed me. But that doesn't mean that other people are going to be equally disturbed by the song if they have a different experience with it or maybe no experience with it. And I think that's the, a lot of the difficulty that, and we've talked about it in previous episodes. Like people will come around and say, Oh, this kind of music, you know, it's it's terrible. And you know, they play it at the clubs and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, they don't, number one. But number two, <laughs> it's like if you have that background and those deep neurological pathways, and maybe you haven't worked through that in your life, then yeah. you come to church and you hear that music that has a similar style you might associate it not because the style itself is bad but because of what the style reminds you of right and so what that means is you got some stuff to process it doesn't mean the rest of us are doing something wrong it just means you've got stuff to process and heal in your own past with your own associations and and shame-based frameworks that you're still healing from um it doesn't mean that every single person Is subject to the same experience because they're not, Mm -hmm. you know, we're we're also different. So, anyways, I thought I'd throw that in there as you were sharing. No, Uh, that's good. I felt like it matched up. Yeah. That, what you just said, is part of why
0: I've always, like, from a very young age, from the first time I read Romans 14, I was like, huh, I know this is about food, but this feels very connected to our music conversation. And and I think there's something very similar going on with Paul talking about those who have weak faith who feel they can only eat vegetables, because they've come from a pagan context, they've come from a situation where they associate meat eating with idolatry, right with sacrifices to idols, and Paul, we've already talked about how Paul deals with stuff in like First Corinthians, for example, I think we talked about that right. Yeah, we did. We did. We did. Um, but like yeah, the Romans 14 thing where Paul is like, yeah, some people like he whose faith is weak eats only vegetables. Like it's a mind breaker to Adventist that that verse exists in the Bible. <laughs> Obviously, he's not talking about like vegetarianism. It's a completely different cultural context for that. Right. But the same thing applies to music. People have come from a context where I, I remember an interaction with a, a brother at church after have I told you my guitar distortion because the organist couldn't make it that day? Uh, no, story. No, I don't, I'm not familiar okay. with that, no. So, I was leading worship at, like, a fairly large church here in Ontario, kind of like the flagship church of the Ontario Conference, and this was, like, a number of years ago, um, probably during my undergrad, even. And I had been leading worship there for a while, and, you know, people knew me, people understood, like, I was very, very involved. And there was this one week where I was leading worship, and we were doing a very, like, climb, like, one of the songs was it as well with my soul and the way i had arranged the worship set was that song was kind of like the the set had taken us on a journey and that song was like the climax and like the sun is coming out again kind of thing and i wanted to have this climactic moment in the third verse of the song and i had been in conversations with the organist that week saying like hey i would love it if you came in with the band during this part of the song because I think that, that 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 swell would suit perfectly what we're going for there and I want to do it with the organ and then at the last minute something came up and he wasn't able to make it to rehearsal for that so I was like dang I really was banking on making that happen so now I've got to find a way to do that like big full swell without um the organist being able to participate and so me with my background i was like well i know one way to do that and that's guitar distortion um quite frankly like organs are a crazy sounding instrument um and and they can actually achieve a certain amount of natural like harshness and distortion depending on what kind of organ obviously like your hammond organs are going to do something that like your pipe organs are not going to be able to do but whatever um i actually like in my own like metal band we, we play with a backing track like for like the instruments that we can't play or whatever. Like we don't have enough people for like these extras. And sometimes if there's a guitar layer that I need to like reinforce with something else, I'll actually like replace guitars with organs at times because they can be just as distorted. Um, so I'm like, all right, cool. I'll just use guitar distortion and that will achieve something similar, right? A big crescendo. So I did that and I knew it would raise some eyebrows, but I was like, I think people will get it In context, like, I not only did I do that, but I had the whole congregation at that point, because they would sit through praise and worship, because they were still very traditional, but I had everyone stand at that verse. And like, I was like, No, this, this actually did something right. And there was this one brother who came up to me after worship, and said to me, this is like one of the most responsible complaints I've ever received in church. Like this, to me, like, if I could only receive complaints like this for the rest of my life, I would just be like, I love people who complain to me about my music (laughs) because they're so responsible. He came up to me and he said, like, I love what you do. I love your heart and your involvement. And I think what you're doing is important. I used to listen to a lot of heavy metal back in the day. I used to listen to, like, hard rock music while I was doing drugs. So when I hear the sound of guitar distortion, when I hear the sound of guitar distortion, it takes me to a time in my life when I was far from God. For me, could you refrain from using that sound in the future? And I never used guitar distortion in that church ever again because he worded it like that. Mm. He took responsibility for his own personal reaction to it. I remember I, my parents and like some of the more progressive leaning, like pastors and stuff, they rushed over after that conversation and they rushed over to me like, are you okay? Do we need to go talk to him? I was like, no, was, I, mm. I'm going to Romans 14 my way through this conversation because like, this is it. Everything that I've read in Romans 14 for my whole life. I'm like, mm. this is the situation. Like, do not put a stumbling block in the way of the weaker brother but he was willing to own that in that situation like he was the weaker brother and i was like i fully completely absolutely unreservedly respect that like yeah. without hesitation like i have so much respect for that because like you did not universalize your mm. experience you yeah. you understood that it was related to your history and I love that I can have that personal connection with you, that yeah. I know part of your story, and I know that it's actually meaningful for me to refrain from something for your sake, for your discipleship, for your growth yeah, as a person, yeah. right? And, and to me, that's really what it comes down to. Um, if I'm not mistaken, uh, Lauren Siebold, I don't even know how to pronounce his name properly, but Adventist Today, um, he wrote an article... That I think is very interesting, um, called The Tyranny of the Weaker Brother. And it points out one of the flip sides of the Romans 14 situation, which is that like you can't always play the weaker brother card. Like, not everything it gets to be a stumbling, like just because something is your preference doesn't mean you get to say, Oh, that's a stumbling block. Sorry, you can't do that at all yeah, in yeah. front of me, right? Like that's at right. some point, there are scriptural limitations to that, right? Like Paul would not probably accept it if peter said like well i don't know paul sitting with gentiles and eating with them is a stumbling block for me like i think paul would say sorry you don't then your stumbling block is stupid sorry you have yeah, to yeah. get <laughs> over it right like so I, I you and your circumcision guys like you have to get over it i'm sorry or you have to learn how to grin and bear it like there are limitations to it so i don't want to like write a blank check to everyone who wants to play the weaker brother card <laughs> That's right yeah and you can't control what everyone does all the time, including when you're not around or at a church you don't attend. Like, the, there's, there's limitations to these things. But this is why we do ecclesiology, right? Like, right. so we can learn how to manage these things. Um, So
1: that's my story about the, my that's my Romans 14 story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and, and I think that's I think, great because, yeah. in fact, and I want to revisit that story when we do the Q&A. Because one of the questions that I got was like, you know, when it comes to corporate worship, like, what are the, like, you know, how do we balance it out? Uh, yep. So we'll talk about that when we do the Q and a, but I think that mm. that example that you shared is a really good one. Cause you know, like we, we're, we're not advocating even throughout this series. Hey, those of you who have heard this and you're like, Oh yeah. You know, contemporary Christian music is a, you know, biblical and legitimate way of praising God. So I'm going to go back to my home church and like start a war and say, screw you, we're doing it. You know, and like heard a yeah. bunch of people along the way, cause it's not what we're advocating for at all. Um, yeah. And I, I think the story that you just, told us like really encapsulates that beautiful way of saying like you know here's here's an example of how we can honor one another because he was honoring what you're doing you know yeah and honor one another and hold non-judgmental space for each other while also recognizing let's meet in the middle and let's let's make concessions for one another so that we can grow together because at the end of the day um even if something is perfectly okay like i believe and like you believe with when it comes to styles contemporary worship styles mm-hmm. the context still plays a role in how we apply that in a way that then multiplies beauty and healing as opposed to division and 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 chaos you know um yeah. so we'll talk about that a little bit more in the q and a cuz that was one of the questions that came through um yeah. but i want to come back uh just cuz i've got literally 30 minutes left and there's yep. so i wanted to hit on Two things as we close on this episode of adventist history and and ellen white and how those things play into this conversation um there seems to be and and i've read this because you, you talk about pruitt's sort of like eugene pruitt's sort of contribution to this conversation and and look i like a lot of the people that we've mentioned as well like i know oftentimes when we're having these conversations there's like a tendency like oh i don't want to like you know, name drop and, you know, like, because sometimes name dropping sort of sounds like a personal attack. And so like, I'd want to say just on behalf of you and myself, like a lot of the people that we've mentioned, like we admire, you know, like, I have an incredible amount of admiration for um, for for Ivor Myers. Uh, Eugene Pruitt, listening to some of his sermons on audio verse, brought me, you know, like really helped me through some seasons of deep depression that I had. Mm-hmm. And he had some content on there that was like really, really beautiful. The only reason why we're mentioning them sort of publicly is because they publicly speak about these topics and, yeah. and we're all familiar with it. You know, like, we're all familiar with their views on it. And so, you know, there's no need to beat around the bush, you know, like we honor yeah. them, we respect them. And they have some public statements and contributions that they've made to this conversation. And we're making public contributions to the conversation. So we we just mentioned their name for that reason. Yeah. Um, but there is there does seem to be a sort of uh, an, an, an epistemological frame that guys like Pruitt use when it comes to this conversation, uh, mm-hmm. sort of what can be termed a danger epistemology. And I know that you've written that in the notes. So I just wanted yeah. to get like your ideas, you know, talk to us about this danger epistemology and that that framework um, that sort of distorts this conversation a bit. Um, And yeah, and, and then we can sort of bring this idea of the bedlam of noise, um, not to a close, because I think what this episode is inviting people to do is inviting people to think panoramically and yeah. to and to dig deeply, rather than just run off with particular statements that you can just apply without thought. Um, So we're not trying to be like, here's the final say. And and we've only really looked at one Ellen White statement. There's so many others, you know, so it's like, but it's just to say, like, there's a much broader and healthier way of looking at this, that allows us to embrace the principles that are being taught without the straitjacket that conservatives often bring to this conversation and to the worship expression overall. Um, yeah. but yeah, talk to us about the danger epistemology and and just some closing thoughts you have on on the bedlam of yeah. noise. Yeah.
0: So I've struggled on whether or not to call this danger epistemology or purity epistemology. It, it's a little bit of both, and it's it's well represented. If you read the you know, the article that you've linked on your site to the exchange between David Asherick and um Eugene Pruitt. Um, there is a moment in their exchange where um Eugene Pruitt tells David Ashrick that he thinks, so David Ashrick was in some like emo bands before his conversion. Um, I know he in his like personal presentations uses the phrase punk. And so I'm just genre labeling with the advantage of hindsight and saying like this moment in time at this region, this sound, this was like middle stage emo before emo blew up. That's what I would say. Um, obviously he experienced it as like straight edge punk of a particular variety. But if he were to ever get into an argument with me about it, I would be like, I don't know, man, single file line. Y'all sound like an emo band to me. Um, Possibly a screamo band. Um, But (laughs) you know, that aside, Eugene Pruitt says to him, "Um, your familiarity with secular music and like, modern music styles prior to conversion is actually a detriment to your ability to think clearly about music. You know, David Ashrick had kind of thrown out there, be like, do you even understand? Like, do you make music? Do you know how to play music? Because like, I feel like understanding music and its different styles would be a pretty important part of like speaking responsibly about it. And Eugene Pruitt's response to that was like, well, actually, no, you're the one with the deficit because you are familiar with worldly forms of music. And so the the implication of course, being like, it has tainted because you're familiar with it, because you have a relationship to it, it's tainted your ability to think clearly about what music should be. Right. Mm -hmm. So to my mind, that's completely unacceptable. That's just saying that like, Ignorance equals knowledge or like ignorance equals like the betterment of knowledge. The the common counter objection you encounter is like, well, do you have to become an alcoholic to know that drinking is bad for you? Or do you have to like get addicted to cigarettes to know that it's bad for you? Of course not. Like, of course not. But the idea that rock music is as bad for you as like alcoholism or cigarette addiction is completely ridiculous there there is no analogy between those things and if you think there is then yeah you're just you're getting into pseudoscience at that point so and i I would say to someone
1: you you don't have to drink alcohol to know that alcohol is bad for you uh, because there's plenty of obvious examples but if you're going to speak responsibly about alcoholism and recovery then Yeah. yeah you better you better do some studying (laughs) sure exactly yeah you need to you better better have some legitimate qualifications yeah yeah (laughs) and
0: so i think this is one of those things where i'm like ah this is tending into a direction where i think we're we're straying away from a responsible definition of what counts as knowledge um so i think that would be one of the first things that i would say is like if anyone is approaching this from an angle that says like oh well you're too you're in too deep in like modern music styles to have a sensible judgment on these matters i just i don't i don't even really have much of an argument besides like i just reject that i think knowledge is knowledge um i think we've demonstrated if 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 you need an argument for that i would say listen to this whole podcast series again like knowledge of music history knowledge of music theory knowledge of like how philosophy plays into this knowledge of how theology and all of that plays into this like all of this is useful even even everything i've everything I've told y'all who are listening to this is part of an integrated worldview. Mm. I don't know what else to tell you. Like all of these things that I'm telling you are processed through an Adventist brain. You just have to work out the implications of that, however long it takes you.
1: Well, you Um, know, it's interesting because that line of reasoning, I remember I met a lady who was a Mormon years ago during an evangelistic series that I was doing. And she came along to the series. She was really sweet, but um she came along and she hung out with us and she listened to the sermons and she thought they made a lot of sense she even read um uh thoughts for an amount of blessing by ellen white okay and she thought it was a beautiful book and i was having a conversation with her and the friend of hers that brought her and trying to identify like what's the reason why this lady um because she was like even though she came and she enjoyed it she was like oh i'm i'm a mormon for life like i'm not going to change my beliefs Mm -hmm. and what it really boiled down to And honestly, I've always found Pruitt to be a very well thought individual. So I'm surprised that he would make this line of reasoning, because what this lady said to us was the reason why she believed Mormonism was 100% the truth was because Joseph Smith was unlearned. Oh, and that everything that we were teaching required us to, you know, like I was in school getting a bachelor's in theology, and there was all this study and academia behind it. But Joseph Smith was a simple man. He was a humble man. He was unlearned. He had no training whatsoever. And somehow, right. in her mind, that equated to he's the one who's one hundred percent right. Because the moment you get educated, you are now tainted. Right. Right. The moment you do theological training, you are now part of the system. You you've been indoctrinated. You've been you know inculturated into all the error that yeah. is prime and parcel of christianity but because joseph smith was not tainted and then she made analogies to like jesus and his disciples like they weren't part of the religious class you know they were untainted as well um and it's like you forgot to mention the fact that you know the person through whom god spread the church the most paul (laughs) very, um, you know was extremely educated so yeah like it's this idea that if you're uneducated then you have a sense of there's a purity. purity Yeah. And if you are educated, that, you know, and, and so that was her reasoning for remaining a Mormon, even though she couldn't debate or have a legitimate reason to deny what she was hearing in the sermons. It was right. like, yeah, but you're preaching, you know, you have a bachelor's in theology and you've been tainted by that. Like Smith was yeah. just pure, you know, and it was it's like, what way- do you say to that? You can't say anything to that. You're just like, uh, well, good luck to you then. You know, I don't know what to say. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's what it is essentially a it's a way
0: to justify emotional reasoning and and confirmation bias, um, which is a, a, when people who are otherwise well-spoken and, and articulate engage in this, it's disappointing. Right. So, and this is kind of the thing I run into with a lot of pastors uh, who I'm like, Oh, you're smart. And then they'll get to the music topic and they'll start talking and I'll just be like, why did you chuck your brain out the window? Like what is going on? So that, that part of it is part of why I was like, oh, is this like a purity epistemology? There's also the danger aspect of it um, that I'll, I'll get into just now with the time we have left. Um, if you go on Eugene Pruitt's website, um, and I've uh, included a link to it, but on Bible, is that what I've linked here in the notes? I think it is. Yeah. Daniel three and music. So he has this page that was published there's no publication date i'm fooling myself here anyways if you scroll the entire page it's just ellen white quotes 100% just ellen white quotes i've I, honestly i've actually found it very useful cuz i was like oh he put all of ellen white's like music like her most poignant music quotes all in one place for me thank you um so i have that copied down um but it's all of these and what i think is really astounding is the fact that it's labeled Daniel 3 and music, and in the entire body of this, there is no reference or explanation of how anything here relates to Daniel 3. Now, the idea here, and I understand the Adventist mind well enough to know this, is that if you have 2SM 36 in the back of your mind, something's going to happen. Music is going to be the devil's snare, it's going to cause us to go astray. Oh, that's like Nebuchadnezzar's golden selfie statue. Um, and the three Hebrew boys, and all the musical instruments that were present there, right? Like, thats it's really easy to go like, oh, yeah, see, that's another time when music was used to get people to worship idolatrously, right? Um, Now, there is no reference in these Ellen White quotes as far as I've read them all. I don't think I saw any references to Daniel 3. So this is just completely an arbitrary association he's drawn up between them. Uh, What I found kind of infuriating is that there was like a couple quotes in there that that are just like aggressively off topic. Like there's one quote in there about how, like, hey, you know, if your kid, I mean, I'm paraphrasing Ellen White here, but the gist of what she says is, you know, if your kid is struggling in their main subjects in school, don't force them to like put a lot of time into like practicing an instrument. Daniel 3, where? like Daniel 3 where, right? But what yeah. it what it is, I I'm I'm trying to think like okay, how would I make sense of that like making this arbitrary connection? And I'm like, "Oh, okay. Um if I put this alongside some of these other quotes that like criticize people who put too much importance on music or are like over obsessed, maybe you could be like, "Oh, okay, so it's the the criticism is here like you're being idolatrous if you assign too much value to music in your life, or you invest too much time into music in your life, whatever. Right. Um, I'm like, oh, okay, I can kind of see where that's coming from. And then the other part of my brain goes, Max, you remember that episode you did with Marcos where you talked about utilitarianism? Cause that's just that. Um, it's just that logic coming in to have a heyday and trying to sneak in through a, uh, using Ellen White as a Trojan horse. Right. So You know, there's things like that where I look at these like arbitrary, completely like out of context assemblies of Ellen White quotes and just being like, oh, this is Daniel three. I'm just like, this is not responsible. This is this is not honest. Some of these quotes aren't even necessarily related. And you're just like elevating them to the level of Daniel three as like next to scriptures and being like, see, see see, this is what this scripture was about. It's happening. Now, mentally import all of your 2SM36 prejudices into this passage, right? And I think that's just so transparently illegitimate. Um, I, I had a more elegant way of like explaining that. But I think you get my point, right? And I don't know if this is just going to come down to a difference of intuitions, but like, I'm pretty sure one of the quotes in there is one that we talked about where Ellen White is like, oh yeah, the angels sing soft all the time. It's like, cool, but check the Bible because they don't sing soft all the time. That's what they showed you, right? So like, it's again, don't check your brain at the door. You have to actually integrate your knowledge and like bring everything into consideration when you're reading ellen white and you do have to actually still use the bible (laughs) like i I don't know what else to say so i'll come to i think what is going to be like my main final point there are so many things i wanted to say but i don't think uh i'll have the time for it just given the time we have left i actually took all of the quotes that he had on that page and i categorized them together like what what type of argument does this reduce down to so there's a number of them where she her arguments are essentially about like frivolity and distraction etc etc right and I think that plays into the like the the danger epistemology thing but I would like to talk about um what I call the two by four in the sky argument so When I was publishing more regularly the videos for Reframe Adventist worship, Eugene Pruitt came into the comment section, or, you know, I shouldn't assume, maybe it's someone pretending to be Eugene Pruitt who happens to speak with the same vocabulary as him and be very concerned about contemporary worship infecting the church. I don't know, but came into my comment section and made this comment um, basically saying, like, I don't need proof. I don't need scientific proof I don't need like verified peer-reviewed proof for um modern music styles being harmful in the same way that I don't need peer-reviewed scientific proof that it's dangerous to walk on a two by four suspended in midair right he's like what he's saying is it's properly basic it's It's so obvious that you shouldn't have to offer proof for it. It If you see a two-by-four suspended in the air or like a, like a, a long piece of wood, yeah, trying to do the balancing beam walk on that, inherently dangerous. That should be obvious, right? And he's saying modern music styles are analogous to that. Now, spiritual danger in this case is what? Danger of infidelity to God, danger of sin, danger of loss of your rational mind. It could be any number of those things. I think for Adventists, all of those ideas are um, bound up together. But for me, there's so many problems with this line of thinking. um, And I really want to point them out. Um, One, it's a circular argument. Okay. He says, conclusive proof that modern music is dangerous isn't necessary, because it's face value reasonable to assume that it's dangerous. If you asked him to provide proof for that claim, he'd say it needs no proof because it's self-evident, but that's a circular argument. He knows he doesn't need proof for the claim because he knows it, right? That's the circular argument. Um, This claim that is face value obvious, his claim that it is face value obvious that modern music is dangerous can be easily reversed. So you could construct that into some kind of valid argument, I suppose, right? Where you have a conditional statement and a consequent phrase. Like you could hypothetically do that. Um, you know, eh, uh, I'll
1: have to do the wording nicely when I have more time. But, but maybe maybe thing- you can do the wording as you think because you're talking about the reversal of the idea. It can work both ways, right?
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, so- and, and
1: I remember some years ago, uh, uh, a lady that we know um, came and visited us when we were still in Tennessee. And she said, oh yeah, I was, um, I, she, and she was white. And she says, oh, I, I, I was at an African-American church this past weekend. I visited an African-American church. And she said to my wife, um, she said, oh, look, I had a good time, but I didn't enjoy the worship, you know, because uh, African-American people, the way they worship is, you know, it's very loud and, you know, lots of emotion. And, you know, I think all of that emotion, uh, it just like, it, it, masks the holy spirit like they they feel sure. joyful but it's not really the holy spirit it's the music and they feel excited but it's not really the holy spirit it's just the music and you know so basically the music is creating the experience and they think it's the holy spirit right and i said to my i said to my, we didn't get into a debate you know because it was like sometimes you just got to know when it's just not worth your time you know sure. um so but i said to my wife after i was like you know you can flip that You can flip that so easily. That's how you know it's baloney. Because I can say to her, when you go to your church and you sing your calm, collected hymns, it creates the impression of reverence. It creates the impression of calmness. It creates the impression of serenity. But it's not really the Holy Spirit. It's your music that's doing that. So you see what I did there? I just flipped the script, right? Like you could say that about African American worship, and I can say it about European worship. Like that, your sense of the holiness and presence of God and the peace of God is just an artificial construct created by right. the slowness of your hymns. And it's like clearly right. this is a moot point. Like you know, music yeah. creates emotive experience in both scenarios. You know, like that doesn't make it bad. You know. So anyway. Yeah. So and and
0: so I would say to anyone who wants cuz I I'm not going to have the time to go into like the logic side of this but if you want to understand the nature of the argument I'm trying to construct here look up the GE Moore shift. It's a it's a very specific type of logical argument structure where you basically take someone's argument and you run it backwards. I have a GE Moore shift thing for this but I haven't written it out as elegantly as I thought I had so I'll have to come back to that for the video series. But um Essentially, if you're arguing that like it's patently obvious that this contemporary Christian music is dangerous, what you're arguing for, what, what your argument is actually saying, and you should be able to say it with your chest, is the people who are making this music are to some extent or another, either being influenced by or unknowingly or maybe knowingly, working for Satan. right? You are doing the devil's work. You, you are, in fact, a tool of the evil one. And to that, I, and this kind of is what the discussion comes down to, is that people are willing to say on the basis of however much or however little knowledge I have on this topic, I'm going to make this value judgment about other people who are using their talents and skills and gifts and saying, because I read X, Y, and Z, or maybe just one Ellen White quote, I can conclude that you are the grand delusion for the end of time. What you're doing is the final deception. And I'm like, okay, cool. But like, I can make your danger epistemology like, oh, it's too much of a risk. I don't want to risk idolatry. Okay, I can make that run against you too. Because guess what? When the when the scribes and the teachers of the law came to Jesus and said, it is by Beelzebub that this man casts out demons. Jesus says, don't blaspheme the Holy Spirit. What I'm saying is, if young and old Adventists who make contemporary styles of music and who lead contemporary styles of music, if they are actually serving God, if they are actually worshiping Jesus, if they are not on Satan's employee list to deceive the world at the end of time, if, like, this is the thing. If y'all on the traditionalist side are wrong, and we actually do love Jesus, and Jesus actually accepts our praise, then you are running the risk of calling Yahweh a demon. Mm. You are running the risk of calling God an evil spirit that's that's the risk you run so if you're saying oh it's too risky to learn about these modern music styles oh it's too risky to give a chance to this it's too it's as obvious as balancing on a two by four in the sky and i'm like okay i hate to break it to you but there's a glass ceiling up there and there's like 57 people walking around freely up there on what looks like sky to you like here's All the artists I've been writing about on the haystack, are you going to tell us that we're all serving the devil? Are you going to tell us that we're all not real Christians? Are you going to tell us that we're all deceived? You can. You can hold that opinion if you want, but you're going to have to back it up and you're going to have to say it with your chest. And you're going to have to accept the fact that if your concern, if your whole Paradigm. If your whole argument is based on risk and danger and purity, was like your your hands are dirty too. Here, if you're wrong, because if we're actually serving God, if God has inspired the songs I've written, if God has led me to meet the people who I formed a band with, if God has been involved in my life in shaping me to the musician I am today, and all of these other musicians, who are you? Who am thou? which thou should say unto me wherefore i are demon server i don't know i don't like <laughs> yeah i am a christian i'm not a perfect one but i don't worship a demon mm. and like that really has to be said i you know there's this thing that happens where we have prejudices and we let them take over but like I know lots of Pentecostals who are real Christians. A lot of my friends, some of my bandmates that I play in other bands with, I play in a charismatic group, right? I remember the first time when I was at Tyndale, the first time I went to a Pentecostal church, I was so ashamed of myself because I'd asked my friends so many offensive questions about like, hey, is someone going to bark like a dog under the piano? And stuff like, you know what I mean? like and not a single person in the whole room spoke in tongues. It was a normal Protestant mm. worship service. There was no charismatic demonstrations. and they had a charismatic, they had Pentecostal theology in that church, and nobody spoke in tongues. I, I like wh- what are we doing here? You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the Wesleys earlier because Adventism has Wesleyan heritage. We have Methodist heritage via Ellen White. That's the holiness movement. But the Pentecostals, they're the holiness movement too. Like they're just as much part of that. And their beliefs about what they're doing have to do with sanctification. And like the holy flesh movement that developed within early Adventism, that had to do with sanctification in a Wesleyan-Arminian theological perspective. And as far as I understand it from my conversations with my Salvation Army friends, they're Arminians too. So what is going on that we are just picking like for the last hundred years, whether it's the Salvation Army or the Pentecostals or the Charismatics, we're just picking fights with other Arminians and just being like, must be the devil, must be demon worship, must be uh, artificial Holy Spirit. I'm just like, bro, this stuff is in our DNA too. This stuff is in our theological heritage and our background too. It's We are not that far removed from this. And I, if I'm not mistaken, I think there's evidence from early Adventism that Ellen White herself was, was part of some strange, like charismatic E looking visionary experiences and stuff like that. So Mm. like, yeah, yeah. For us to all like write all of it off as demonic. Like I had a friend who was not Pentecostal, who didn't believe in speaking in tongues, who went to a charismatic service, spoke in tongues and then was like, God is calling me to the mission field. Peace out. I'm going on to be a missionary. I'm like, that's not the work of the devil. I don't know what to tell you. That's Mm -hmm. not Satan's work. I can't explain it. I'll, I'll pull a John Wesley and be like, I don't get it a lot of the time. It doesn't fit my theology, but far be it from me to tell God what he can and
1: can't do, you know? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of this, again, boils back to the fundamentalist black and white framework. Yeah. wherein everything that fits neatly within the black and white is of god and anything that doesn't is automatically assumed to be a deception. And yeah. you know and I and I'd be the first person to say like I think deception is real. For me, I think it's my desire to be aware of deception and awakened to the way that Satan works. That is what one of the things rather that has really led me to study this topic at length. Because what are we talking about when we talk about deception? We're talking about an idea that's presented one way, but is really rooted in something else, right? So it's right. like, here's a truth claim, believe it. And without realizing it, you signed up for something else that's festering underneath. And yeah. when I think about the worship wars, and when I think about the hymns-only movement and and uh, you know the anti-CCM movement, is like on the surface, it's like holiness and and righteousness and you know the, the the worship of God. But underneath, when you look at the history of this movement, you find racism and you find cultural elitism and you find you know Eurocentric narcissism. Are the Gnosticism. real things you know? <laughs> Gnosticism, as as we discussed as well, you know, going back to Augustine and mm-hmm. and even before. Like these are the things that undergird the conservative sort of, and I don't want to say, like, I have a lot of friends who are conservative who don't agree with that, like, really stringent view of worship. Sure. So maybe I will say traditionalist. Yeah, traditionalist um um perspective on music. On the surface, it's like, it's all about holiness and, you know, God's worship must be, you know, holy and righteous. But it's like, actually, when I yeah. think underneath, all I find is a whole bunch of, like, African-hating, you know, Jim Crow-pushing, pro-slavery rhetoric from the human the political, body is bad, you know, that's right. Yeah. From, from the political movements in, in antebellum South America. And I'm like, yeah, that to me, if there's a deception, that's it, you know? Yeah. Um, and so, you know, is is the conversation black and white? Is it easy? No, it never is. It's messy, no. and it's and it's and there's a lot of ups and downs and lefts and rights, and there's a lot of things to unearth. And like I said earlier, like I'm not standing here saying, you know, like pull the culture card on it, and that makes everything okay. I don't believe that either, you know, no. but I definitely think that the way forward to to create a culture that's culturally inclusive and culturally sensitive, um, and that allows us to reach people who are different from us and allow them to be different from us and express themselves in a way that's different from us, it requires a really balanced and nuanced perspective on God and his dealings with culture and his dealings with generations that is not present in a fundamentalist framework. It, In fact, the fundamentalist framework strangles our ability to really think that way. And so that yeah. in turn is going to strangle our ability to engage emerging generations, to engage our own young people in our church, to engage diversity and culture. And that is going to strangle our ability to do mission properly. We're going to end Mm -hmm. up with a church where the only people who belong are the people who think exactly like the traditionalists Mm -hmm. and who express themselves exactly that way. And everyone else is like, sorry, you know, and it's kind of like going back to the book of Acts where it's like, should Gentiles become Jews before they become Christians, you know? And I feel right. like in the modern age, particularly in Adventism, it's like should people from different parts of the world become European before they become Adventist? Yeah, we've just moved and that's to essentially posts. what we've done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so look, I, just to wrap up this episode, mm-hmm. I wanted to, I just wanted to point out per, perhaps three simple things, and we'll talk about this a little bit more in the Q and A. But uh, just to just to wrap this up in 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 terms of like the principles that I see undergirding worship in the Bible and i think that these are reflected in a very contextual way in ellen white's statements as well um Mm -hmm. you know we come back to the idea of worship in you know between cain and abel you know the story of cain and abel and the underlying Mm -hmm. principle that i see there is that proper worship should always point us to the reality of grace right Mm -hmm. that we are saved by grace not Mm -hmm. by our works that's the underlying principle in the Cain versus Abel debacle, you know, in mm-hmm. in in the in the in the scenario with Moses and the worshiping of the golden calf, you know, it's like worship should always remind us of the God who delivers, right? Mm-hmm. The God who's brought us through, rather mm-hmm. than distracting us towards some some idol. And I feel like in many ways the traditionalist perspectives on music do just that. They push us toward the idol of Europeanism and the idol of Americanism, and we mm-hmm. forget. Of the God who is present with us and present at every stage of culture and history and generation, we forget to Mm -hmm. worship Him because we're too busy worshiping 1950s American Anglo, (laughs) you know, worship expressions and before. It's obviously not just 1950s. Um, So worship ought to point us to grace. It ought to point us to you know the 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 God who is who is always present. And and I I totally agree that worship ought to like elevate our intellect. And our our ability as human beings to think clearly, but I think it's more than that. I don't think that worship is the worship of intellectualism or the worship Uh of academia. I think Mm -hmm. worship ought to be a holistic expression where all of who we are, including our emotions, including our bodies, including our intellect, all of it is like an ecosystem. All of it is brought before God as an expression of worship. And I feel like in many ways, the traditionalist framework wants to elevate the intellect and ignore everything else that makes us human. And to me, that's idolatry. Because it's it's not, you know, so I do think that worship ought to be, you know, like, I don't like worship that's overly emotive. One thing I can't stand, I've done it myself many times, and I've like grown to really like dislike it is like, Mm -hmm. you know, when I'm watching like a worship set, and they've sung their beautiful songs, and, and, and now they're between songs, and along comes the pastor with the really emotional voice who just wants to talk about how much god lo- and they all sound like <laughs> that you know yeah yeah I know <laughs> and I'm just like about. oh shut up <laughs> so yeah. like and 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 it's sort of like the, the you know the classical art call auto call with the cheesy inspirational music like I, I don't like those things I find them really disingenuous mm-hmm. and annoying I don't like the hyper emotionalism in worship uh, but I do think that it needs to be like an integrated ecosystem where every part of us, can, can be laid before God and that it, our minds, our bodies, our emotions, all of us, you know? Um, mm-hmm. And so like, I'm definitely not one of these, like, yeah, just whatever, man. Like, I'm not, not like that at all. Um, but I don't think that the traditionalist perspective that we tend to elevate within Adventism um, gives us a good enough foundation or framework to develop a way of worship that is not only biblically sound, but missiologically effective. And so that for me is one of the motivations to say, we got to deconstruct this stuff. We have to ask these questions. We have to peel this onion back. And then from here, we can begin reconstructing a way of worship that's intergenerational, that's cross-cultural, but ultimately that elevates the sacrifice of Jesus as our only hope for salvation. And that points us to or reminds us consistently of the ever-present god who's with mm-hmm. us in every stage of our journey and i think if we're capturing that and we're elevating that the style is neither here nor there it's an expression of your local context and your culture but right. so long as jesus is being lifted up and we are our minds are being brought into the presence of the ever-present god mm-hmm. those are the underlying principles that are timeless yeah. so that would be my that would be my closing thought on that yeah, absolutely. That that puts
0: it really well actually. I I think there's a part of me that feels like dang, I hope we actually covered enough on this episode. <laughs> I mean, we've been here for like several hours now. But I know yeah. I know that it can maybe leave people dry like wondering like, "Oh, did that answer everything?" And I I even didn't say all the things I wanted to say, but like uh, we have to live a life outside of podcasting. <laughs> um but yeah, I I would say we have a wealth of talent in the church. We have a wealth of gifting in our church Mm -hmm. and it's self-sabotaging for us to downplay it for no good reason, Um, especially when I really do believe that God is still trying to speak through the arts and through his people and through his followers. Um, Mm -hmm. And I've met just countless people who are musicians, who are Adventists, who are Christians of other stripes, who have spoken into my life, whom God has used to reach me when I've needed him. And like, it's, we have to move beyond this like, impulse to limit what God can and can't do because of our preconceived notions. Mm. Like that's really what this comes down to. And like, I want to see a fuller expression of what it means for us to be the body of Christ. I mean, quite frankly, we've spent this whole time talking about worship as it relates to music. um, And we have made absolutely very little efforts to talk about what worship means to deaf people, Mm. you know, like it's big and we hyper-focus on the music thing, but like what about people who can't hear sound, Mm. you know, like what does worship mean to them? What other arts are we gonna do in church so that worship can be beautiful to people who can't Mm. hear? Because that's a side of this discussion that we haven't touched. But I think it all stems from our failure to do this as one body of Mm. people who love each other, who are looking out for each other's needs and interests and putting
1: each other above ourselves. So it's a huge physiological question. Yeah, and and I do believe that there's no way we can answer every question in the podcast, but what I really hope... I mean, we do have a Q&A episode coming up. So if anyone's yeah. like, there's this one thing that's just really annoying me that you guys didn't talk about, send me yeah. an email, all right? And mm-hmm. we will talk about it in the Q&A. Um, but I think for the most part, if there's one giant takeaway that I would love people listening to this to have, is that there is a lot we have to figure out and that we can figure out if we stop demonizing each other. yeah. yeah. We might just be able to have a conversation meaningful enough Mm -hmm. to create something beautiful for the future of our church, but Mm -hmm. we can't get there if we're just like constantly demonizing new styles of worship and new musicians and, you know, new expressions and instruments. And like, we're never going to get there if we're just committed to attacking and demonizing, you know, um, and a lot of these things sermons i've heard on music and dvds i've watched attacking different styles of music and syncopated beats etc um apart from all the things we've already said about all of that Mm -hmm. i just find that what those things do is they shut down meaningful conversation because now there's a whole swathe of our population that we can automatically relegate to the pile of deception we can demonize them we can silence them and 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 you can't have a conversation in a context like that you know no. so i hope at the very least it this series has enabled those of us who've listened to move beyond even if you even if you still don't like contemporary christian music and you don't want it in your church that's fine so long as we've moved beyond the demonization of the other to the yeah. point where we can understand each other and have meaningful discussions i think we have achieved something uh something grand my but greatest with that said,
0: ultimate yeah i was just my final thought is that like my greatest and ultimate hope for what this podcast accomplishes is that for however many generations we have left before jesus decides to come back um i want coming generations of adventists to grow up in a healthier and more like rational and just biblical environment for themselves and their gifts than i did i just want to see coming generations be integrated and use their gifts with the blessing of the church and with the support of the church and with love in the eyes of their brothers and sisters and church family. That's that's what I want to see. And I think we are on our way to it.
1: So absolutely. Absolutely. I love it, man. I love it. All right, bro. Uh, we're going to go ahead and wrap this episode up. Uh, there is a Q&A coming up. So make sure you send your questions, guys. This is your one and only chance to barbecue Maxwell Aka with your questions. Um, so so please send them through. And uh, yeah, thank you so much for listening and for tuning Eviscerate in. Eviscerate me with your questions. Eviscerate, Dis- Max. Don't destroy.
0: Be nice. Just like I, I want to weep at your questions. So <laughs> don't be nice. Okay.
1: But also, if you ask a question. And it's obvious you haven't listened to the series. We're not even going to no. bother answering no. it. All right. Listen to the series Yeah, <laughs> because there's no point in like, you know, revisiting all that content. So, But if, if you've listened to the series and there's something that we didn't touch on or there's something that you want to explore more or that didn't make sense, then yes, we will take those questions. All right, guys, take care. God bless. And uh, we'll catch you at the Q&A. <laughs>